0: It's the Ralph Nader Radio Hour.
1: Stand up, stand up. You've been sitting way too long.
0: Welcome to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. My name is Steve Scrovan, along with my co-host, David Feldman, who today, I'm not ashamed to say, is this is live Zoom. He's the eye candy for this episode. Welcome, David. This is exciting. We have a live virtual studio audience. We do. We do. And we have the man of the hour, Ralph Nader. Hello, Ralph. Hello, everybody. And for those of you who are not aware, this is something you're not going to hear in other program. We're going to talk about something. We're going to talk about slip and falls. Slip and falls, did you know, are the leading cause of accidental injury in the United States. According to recent CDC data, falls are the cause of 800,000 annual hospitalizations related to head injuries and hip fractures. Falls among older adults, age 65 and over, cause over 36,000 deaths annually and $50 billion in medical costs. Most of these falls are preventable. We can all watch where we're going, choose practical shoes, or make other safety conscious behavior choices. But like so many other regrettable, avoidable events in our daily lives, the biggest untapped potential for protecting us from slips, trips, and falls lies outside the realm of personal responsibility. The risk of falling depends on how our workplaces, homes, and public spaces are designed, workplace safety policies, and product safety standards. Our guest today will be author and leading expert in slip and fall prevention, Russell Kenzior. Mr. Kenzior is the founder of the National Floor Safety Institute, or NFSI, a nonprofit organization working to aid in the prevention of slips, trips, and falls through education, research, and standards development. He will join us to discuss where, why, and how slip and falls happen, how to prevent them, the legitimacy of slip and fall lawsuits, the role of Consumer Product Safety Commission, and the latest safety news from the NFSI. Now, today's show is co-sponsored by the American Museum of Tort Law, and we'll hear from the museum's director, Melissa Bird. After that, we'll bring our virtual audience into the conversation for a live Q&A, and a as always, somewhere in the middle, we'll check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mochiber. But first, let's kick things off with the director of the American Museum of Tort Law, Melissa Byrd. Welcome, Melissa.
2: Thanks so much, Steve. Welcome, everyone. The American Museum of Tort Law is proud to co-sponsors today's discussion on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour Live. And thank you all for joining us for a compelling discussion on slip and fall prevention. Our guest today is author and leading authority on slip and fall prevention, Russell Kensier. But before we introduce Russell, we here at the museum would like to take this opportunity to invite all who are listening to visit our website, which is www.tortmuseum.org. You can take a virtual tour. You can check out our online gift shop where you can order Russell Kenzier's best-selling books on accident prevention. And also, I'd like you to check out Russell's new YouTube channel, at Safety News, which is lowercase, and news is N-E-W-Z. It is now my pleasure to introduce our speaker for today's discussion, Russell Kenzier, founder and chairman of the Board of National Floor Safety. He is an internationally recognized leading safety expert in slip, trip, and fall prevention. Thanks so much for joining us today, Russ.
3: Thank you, Melissa. It's a pleasure to be here. Welcome indeed, Russell. Here we go again with your <laughs> inevitable persistence all over the country. You've been an expert witness here by far the convener of concerned people about trips, falls, and the enormous pain, damage, fatalities, hospitalizations, and economic costs. Listeners and viewers, we're going to start with the physical environment. This is the physical environment of the way floors are designed. Floor coverings are designed, floor chemical cleaning agents are applied, how stairs And railings and banisters are designed, footwear is involved. Before we get to more mindful pedestrian attitudes in order to try to negotiate, particularly places like nursing homes or slippery supermarket floors or auditoriums, the environment that the person is into. So, why don't you start, Russell, with your effort to get the Consumer Product Safety Commission in Washington, which has jurisdiction over this? To do the right thing, first, disclosure, and second, eventually, safety standards that all flooring and other physical environment vendors should have to adhere to.
4: No, you're absolutely right, Ralph. The U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission, in my opinion, has a responsibility to protect all of us as consumers from products that may lend themselves to some type of hazard. In my industry, the three biggest causes of slips, trips, and falls are the floor, the way the floor is maintained, meaning the cleaning product, and of course, people's shoes. But it may be surprising to your audience that up until the NFSI came along back in 1997, there were no standards for any of those products. And that was not by accident, Ralph. That was by choice. Industry consciously opposed the development of slip and fall or safety standards for floors, floor cleaning products, and footwear. And that really was kind of my first mission, is to go out and start to develop standards. The NFSI published standards beginning in 2002. We were recognized by ANSI, the American National Standards Institute, in 2006. And we published standards under the ANSI NFSI acronym for 14 years, to the point where we became so big, so popular that NFSI now is a peer to ANSI and ASTM and other organizations. Most of your audience may not know that because we're very unique. We just deal with slip, trip, and falls. And our petition, which, by the way, is our third petition to the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission, is focused on a very, very simple request. And that is that manufacturers of floors, floor cleaning products, and footwear test their products' slip resistance and simply label the products that they're selling so the consumer knows what to expect. An example of what we're talking about as far as labeling kind of looks like this. Looks like a gas gauge. The consumer will go to the marketplace. This label will be on the flooring material, the floor cleaning product, or the shoes you buy. And not everything is low traction. Some products are, you know, moderate traction. Here's kind of a different version of the logo. Or believe it or not, there's actually quite a few products that are great, that are high traction. But this concept of simply testing to an, an internationally recognized consensus standard and labeling the product is really what we're asking the government to do, Ralph. We're not demanding any level of performance, but simply tell the consumer. For example, if you're an elderly person and you're cleaning your floor with a common household floor cleaner, our research, which was just concluded in January, Ralph, showed that 12 of the 17 top selling brands of household floor cleaners make your floor more slippery after you mopped it than had you not mopped it at all. And the reason for that is what you alluded to in your opening chemicals. Chemical floor cleaners are designed to leave behind a fragrance. I mean, that's how you know the floor was mopped, right? It smells like lemon lime or pine salt, whatever it might be. But Ralph, most people don't connect the dots and say, well, wait a minute, if I'm leaving a film on the floor that's creating a fragrance, that's that's like perfume, it's oil. And in fact, it is. And so every time you mop your floor, you're making it less safe. But the consumer doesn't know that. Same is true for floors. Many floor covering products simply have a low level of traction right out of the box. And so then you start mopping it with a cleaning chemical that reduces the slip resistance. And then last of all, you're walking on it with shoes, many of which have a low level of traction. And you wonder why we have this $150 billion a year crisis. And by the way, that number is growing, facing all Americans, predominantly, of course, the elderly. But our petition is calling for the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission to demand and require that manufacturers of floor materials and coatings, cleaning products and cleaning agents, floor finishes, those types of things, and footwear. Simply test the products to the appropriate NFSI standard. We've got 11 of them or nine of them. I've got how many are published right now. And label the product. Ralph, our last petition failed by one vote.
3: How many commissioners? How many commissioners on the Product Safety Commission? What was the vote?
4: Well, the previous, the previous time we petitioned, we lost by, it was a three to two vote. And so we got two votes and three were opposed. The, the tiebreaker, of course, was the chairman, Commissioner Burkle. She's gone. In fact, the majority of the commission has been restructured. We feel now because the crisis has just gotten worse. And by the way, in the, in the opening, you're right, Steve, it's not 36,000, it's 42,000. That's how many people died in 2020, 42,000. That number's doubled, Ralph, since 2005 and quadrupled since 1995. And so you connect the dots. We have a massive crisis. In fact, we were talking about this over the break. The risk of dying from an accidental fall is almost exactly the same as dying in an automobile crash. Think about that. As many people die in car crashes today as they do from a fall. That's just unacceptable, and part of that reason is because there's been no emphasis on fall prevention, and there's been billions of dollars spent, in great part, Ralph, due to you, due to your effort and your energy, to make the automobile industry step up and produce safer vehicles. Just stop blaming the driver, or in my case, the pedestrian.
3: Let's talk about it, because it's the same human factors engineering, the relation between the human being and the physical environment. Now, fighting you tooth and nail before the Product Safety Commission, which is why you've been blocked, is led by the flooring industry. They just don't want to be told to make their floors have better traction. And this is a scientific and engineering situation. It's not a hunch. And they fought you. Who are the culprits here? Why don't they just say, hey, it's not that hard to make our floors a little bit more reflecting traction? Why are they fighting you? What well, always comes
4: down to one thing, Ralph, it was why you were being fought. It's liability. It's debt plain and simple. The flooring industry, predominantly led by the ceramic tile industry, specifically the Trade Association for Ceramic Tile called the TCNA, it's basically a multi-billion dollar association made up exclusively of manufacturers and individuals who promote the sale of ceramic tile who opposed it and and my theory as to why is because a lot of what they manufacture is made offshore with very low or very poor quality control measures and so one tile out of a box might have a, a particular level of slip resistance and then the tile right after it in the box might have a different level of slip resistance so for them to actually perform testing and labeling well that presents liability and i'm speaking to what i know because they have openly opposed our petitions twice they sent their army of attorneys to Washington, D.C. and lobbyists to vehemently oppose what we're doing. In fact, every manufacturer of ceramic tile, vinyl floors, wood floors openly opposed the NFSI's proposal, which, by the way, was just, again, can you test and label your product? That's all we are asking for. But Ralph, it comes down to liability. They understand that if, if, in fact, they started labeling products, the consumer would wake up and understand that many of the products they're selling are dangerous right out of the box. Kind of like the cigarette industry in the 60s. You remember, Ralph, when they would tell people, cigarettes were health food, it has menthol, it's good for you. Well, that's kind of where we are today. Manufacturers of flooring materials generally want the consumer to think that all floors are safe. I mean, how else can they be sold? But they really don't want to test and label because Ralph, they know. They know that many of the products that they would test and label would fall into that low traction category. And that presents liability.
3: And I want to just interrupt you here for a minute. The full petition by Russell and the National Floor Safety Institute to the Product Safety Commission is labeled petition, quote, to mandate the testing and labeling of the slip resistance, traction of commercial and residential grade floor coverings, floor coatings, treatments, residential and commercial floor cleaning agents, and consumer footwear, unquote. I want to get on the footwear issue in a moment. I have some things to say about that myself. How can they get the full petition? Give the website mm-hmm. for the National Floor Safety Institute mm-hmm. that you founded.
4: Yeah. If anyone wants to go to our website, it's NFSI, that's Nancy Frank Sam Indigo.org, NFSI.org. And on the main page, you'll see a news section. It's, it was just released, and you can download the entire petition that has been submitted to the Consumer Product Safety Commission. You can also participate in the public review process, uh, the process whereby the commissioners are asking members of the general public for comments. I mean, as you know, Ralph, all those in opposition, they are well-prepared. They submit their public review comments in opposition, oftentimes with just ridiculous reasons. And it's important that the people of our country have a voice and that they be represented, and that the safety of these products that are contributing to six million hospital emergency room visits a year need to be better managed. And not to mention the cost, Ralph, I mean, $150 billion, 50 billion just in Medicare and Medicaid, nursing home admissions. We can go down the list. Our petition is 23 pages long. And the majority of that is just the data. Interestingly, the data produced by the US Consumer Product Safety Commission. It's their data. that says this is a well, crisis. you know,
3: this issue affects everybody. If I was to say the first question we're going to have after you finish your excursus, Russell, we're talking to Russell Kenzior of the National Floor Safety Institute. If I said the first question is restricted to anybody who over the age of 18 has not tripped or fallen, there wouldn't have been anybody connecting with Hannah because there's nobody who hasn't experienced no falls. So. The tragedy is that there's not enough media coverage of this. In fact, most of the reference to falls are in obituaries when you, the cause of death is given complications from a fall. How many times have you heard that? Mm. Complications from a fall. So let's talk about footwear. Uh, over 50 years ago, I got interested in spike heels, the actual damage of spike heels to the floor covering of aircraft. Passenger aircraft came to the attention of the airline industry and the trips and falls from that. Now, the spike heel has survived as a misogynistic product, has survived the women's liberation movement, and <laughs> is still thriving. It gives podiatrists nightmares as well as a lot of business. And that's not the only problem with footwear. There are high-priced shoes like Hubbard who say to their customers, If you want extra traction on this $300 shoe, you have to pay $35 more. So start with the spike heel and go to the footwear problem. And why is the industry so stubborn in persisting in the design of slippery footwear?
4: Oh, you raise an excellent question. And, you know, the stiletto spike heel is a fashion statement. And I would be willing to bet you, this would include the ladies on the panel, that even if women knew just the inherent risk of stiletto heels they would still wear them because they're fashionable not only are they destructive as you mentioned to women's feet but they present an elevated trip hazard the bigger hazard believe it or not ralph is in conventional non-spike heeled shoes Uh, we've all seen when you go to the store those who are in the workplace workers will buy shoes that are called slip resistant you look on the bottom of the sole and and most shoes are not labeled at all but if you look at the bottom of uh, certain work shoes or work boots And this speaks to our audience that's involved in the workplace injuries they'll say slip resistant well ralph we asked the question what does the word slip resistant mean can you tell us footwear industry how do you test how do you define the term slip resistant this was true of floors as well how is the term defined and you know what you find ralph it's not defined see it's an adjective it provides this kind of inherent benefit like new and improved so slip resistant is put on shoes, but it's never been defined and they never tested to it. There's no testing being done on, on footwear of any type in our country until NFSI came along and issued its standard two years ago for measuring the, the slip resistance of, of shoes, which generally is being opposed, again, by the footwear industry and presumably, in great part, because of liability. And so we get into this quagmire. Terms are used that are undefined, testing is not being performed, industry looks the other way, and they would much rather people assume that it was their fault. You know, I I did an episode on my YouTube channel where I closed with a very powerful personal view, and you know, I get offended when people say, watch where you're walking. And the reason I get offended is because my father, Ralph, was blind. He couldn't watch where he was walking. I grew up with a father from my age of, of 12 years old, was blind, permanently disabled. And so when, when people say watch where you're walking, I think of my dad, Joe. Joe Kenzior, who didn't have the ability to look where he was walking. And who's looking out for him? And so I take that personally. And on behalf of the 18, 20 million Americans in the United States that are suffering from some visual disability, stop blaming them. Fix the problem take the concerted effort to make products safer, including shoes. And if you're going to label them as slip resistant, we need to have a standardized, uniform, scientific means of, of testing and labeling. Simply level the playing field. And, and your,
3: your research shows what percent of slip and fall injuries attributed to the footwear industry?
4: About 24%. In fact, if you take flooring, floor care, the floor itself, and shoes, footwear, that will summarize about 74% of all causation of slips and falls. Imagine that. Just by addressing what we're asking the Consumer Product Safety Commission to address could prevent up to 75%
3: of injuries. Talk about your subject in the workplace context. What about workers?
4: You know, Workers, sad to say, Ralph, are oftentimes the least regarded only because of the insurance cycle. You know, people will say, and I, when I started the NFSI and I would go to property owners, business owners and say, how big is your slip and fall problem? You know, restaurant chains. And they'd say, it's real big. That's why we have insurance. You see Ralph, their solution was just insurance. And so businesses that are employing folks that will have a slip and fall, workers comp claim, et cetera, that's just an insurance claim. Well, my view is you're jeopardizing people's health and safety, many of which die from falls. And you're just looking at it as an insurance claim, where's the human impact here? And so I would be willing to bet you, Ralph, that the biggest beneficiary of our labeling concept for footwear will be workers, because they'll then have the benefit of knowing that the shoes they are wearing in their particular workplace offers a safety benefit. Going back to the term slip resistant, slip resistant on what? If you're working in a fast food chain and your flooring conditions is water and grease, well, that's very different than if you're a construction worker working on a job site with dirt and lumber and and gravel. What is the shoe slip resistant on? And so we're just trying to bring clarity. And the biggest beneficiary, Ralph, in my opinion, to the footwear process will not only be the consumer, of course, that's buying dangerous shoes today, but the workers in the workplace who have been a silent voice, have been one of the most highly impacted victims of slips and falls are those people who are doing their job every day, who sadly experience a fall and they're totally disregarded they're just seen as an insurance claim
3: let's look at the military shoes you know that are contracted out for production they're supposed to be very practical no fashion involved boots low cuts dress shoes etc i remember in the army the low cuts were as can be but the boots were a little bit better has there been improvement over the years you know, the, the Pentagon can lay it down. They can just say, here are the specifications. We don't want our soldiers to be slipping, falling, tripping. What's the scene there?
4: Well, the scene has changed a bit. I was contacted several years ago by the DOD. They put together a committee, a group, who's studying this very subject. And part of that came because of all these wars that we've been involved in. A combat boot, say, in, uh, in the Gulf, where soldiers are walking on a sand that's got to offer a different level of performance than, say, somebody walking in a jungle environment or a wet environment, or even different is walking in a, on a building or on a ship. And so they did assemble a committee. And sad to say, Ralph, I think that's kind of where it got stuck. I mean, I got a little boisterous, to be honest with you, when I was on the call they were being kind of lulled by the European. There's a European standard for shoes that's pretty much hollow, doesn't really offer a lot. And they were being courted by the Europeans to adopt their standard. And I said, well, wait a minute. My understanding is if you're an American and it's our Department of Defense, you follow US standards. Why are you going offshore? Why are you going to China? Why are you looking for third party sources of of information when we have it right here in the United States? And I think that changed the kind of trajectory if you will ralph of this committee but you're right there's a very wide range of different types of shoes frankly for your audience knowledge the vast majority of footwear is manufactured offshore predominantly in asia number one country of course is china and so very very few of the shoes that you're buying today are actually made domestically they're all offshore and there are no standards they don't really test and look ralph quality control in many Asian countries is very poor if it exists at all. And so that all jeopardizes public safety, specifically for footwear safety.
3: Well, you talked a bit about liability. Let's talk about the lawsuits that you participated in as an expert witness and a number of them prevailed I think our listeners are interested, what are the fact patterns Mm -hmm. that can nail liability onto, say, a supermarket floor or Mm -hmm. other large defendants? Give us some examples, Mm -hmm. without going into too much detail, some of the scattered cases that you've been into.
4: You know, Ralph, I wrote a book about this. It was called Floored, Real Life Stories of a Slip and Fall Expert Witness. And I get calls every day from attorneys. I've been retained in over 1,300 slip, trip, and fall cases, and that's all I do. Many of these cases are very, very small, and I'm a bit expensive, so I can't help. In fact, I wrote a fourth book, just came out a couple weeks ago, called A Lawyer's Roadmap to Slip, Trip, and Fall Litigation. Buy it on Amazon for 15 bucks. Another plug. (laughs) But I've worked on a lot of cases, and they all follow the same basic pattern. Slip and fall, wet floor, property owner knew about it, predominantly retailers. Retailers have generally poor policies and procedures. Their employees are poorly trained high turnover of their workplace, and they just don't care. And again, it's seen as a cost of doing business. I remember one case where I represented a defendant of a grocery store who thanked me for helping them, quote, win their lawsuit. And I said, well, you know, you spent $150,000, $200,000 just defending yourself. You got 12 more lawsuits. If this is winning, what do you call losing? And they looked at me like, well, what do you mean? I I said, what's your prevention policy? What's your strategy? And you know what they said, Ralph? They said, well, you know, Russ, what we do is we just absorb the cost of slips and falls. We pass it along by way of raising the price of bananas. And I didn't know this, Ralph, but bananas are the number one object or food item that's sold in a grocery store. And then we blame the trial attorneys. And that's, that's the answer. That's what corporate America does. They pay the cost. They pass it along to the consumer. And then they demonize somebody else. The trial attorneys. Well, I've worked on cases that have had massive jury verdicts, one that's in front of the Texas State Supreme Court as we speak. $19 million jury verdict, $13 million in punitive damages against a retail grocery store where a Vietnam vet tripped and fell over a pallet and uh, shattered his elbow and the grocery store had absolutely no shame whatsoever. The, the maximum amount they offered this poor gentleman, I think it was like $10,000. Well, Ralph, he walked away with $19 million, assuming the Supreme Court of Texas doesn't interfere in that, $13 million in punitive damages. See, the people of America are, are waking up. They're tired of these same policies and procedures that corporations and insurance companies push on to all of us, and they're fighting back. And you probably heard the term nuclear verdicts, where a lot of juries are coming back with multi-multi-million-dollar jury verdicts because they, they don't like big companies. They don't like the way the insurance industry steamrolls people. And in my experience, I've worked on at least 10 or 12 cases that were 10 to $20 million jury verdicts right off the bat. And so it's very expensive. Now, don't misunderstand, Ralph, and I know you've got some experience in this. Corporate America will fight tooth and nail if you go to your local grocery store and you slip on a wet floor and they knew about it and there's surveillance video showing it, they will still force you to file a lawsuit. They rarely pay. In fact, I don't remember ever being retained in a case where you know were the a property owner, a retailer, large company ever paid a claim. They fight everything. They put people through the ringer, especially older people who don't want to file lawsuits. They've never filed a lawsuit. They're very uncomfortable. They don't want to be deposed. It's very, very, you know, traumatic for them. And they push people to the brink, Ralph, where they have no choice but to file a lawsuit, most of which settle. But those who don't oftentimes will garner a very large jury verdict. Let me ask you some quick questions.
3: Are there any good companies in this area? Once in a while there's a good, responsible company that leads the way, sets the stage. In terms of floor covering or mm-hmm. other physical environment issues that you just discussed,
4: any good company? You bet you there are. And not only just good companies, but good insurance companies. I worked on cases for companies like Hy-Vee, the grocery store chain, and they have a very straightforward policy. Our workers are supposed to look for wet floor hazards all the time. That's their policy, not once an hour, not whenever they're on their way to the break room. And when they find a hazard, they stay with the spill, they call somebody over, and they fix it immediately. They're a good, good example of a good company. Name the company again slowly. Yeah, it's, it's Hy-Vee, H-Y-V-E-E. They're out of the Midwest. And a great company. Their policies are very well-written, and they hold their employees' self accountable. And that's the key. You know, you can talk about safety culture, but if the culture of the corporation really doesn't focus on or invest in safety, the workers know that. The same is true for the insurance company. We work very closely with a company called Allied Insurance. And they are heavily invested in this area. They put a lot of energy into training and holding their policyholders accountable for performance. And, and that oftentimes is in the face of potentially losing a client. But again, there, there is a migration. It is changing, but sadly Ralph, as long as the Harvard Business School keeps putting out MBAs that have this attitude of safety doesn't matter. It's a cost of doing business, pass it along to the consumer and then demonize the trial attorneys, things aren't going to change. And I, I, I modestly make fun of Harvard University because I've actually heard that preached by Harvard MBA grads. That's the strategy. That's the model. And I think it's just despicable because, look, we can talk about the money, Ralph, and there's a lot of money being spent, but these are human beings. This is your mother, your wife, your sister, your neighbor, or you. These are real people getting injured every day needlessly because corporations
3: don't want to step up and do the right thing. We're talking with Russell Kenzior, founder of the National Floor Safety Institute. He makes an expert witness, but he also deals with prevention. He's pushing the Product Safety Commission and other consumer groups to engage in this effort to prevent, that is to have safer physical environments and more mindful activities by everybody who walks. So before we go to the questions, just a couple of quick ones. Tell us about the stairs design of stairs and adequate banisters and railings and stair coverings, and also tell us about what you think the product safety commission is going to be doing since, you know, all the commissioners now that are in charge.
4: Yeah, I think the position NFSI is in right now with our petition is very, very good. And that's in great part because the problem has gotten worse. And the time has come to take action. Our country financially, I don't have to tell the audience, is in dire straits. We've got inflation. We've got a lot of financial pressure on people, on businesses. And I think this is a good time to really address savings. As far as stairs and banisters, Ralph, one of the biggest reasons for falls on stairs is because, believe it or not, the code enforcement people miss stuff all the time. The geometry of stairs has been around for many, many, many years, hundreds of years, that you want to have a seven inch rise and a 12 inch depth or run on the step. You wanna have handrails on both sides. They wanna be circular so you can grab onto them if you need to balance yourself. And that stair nosing, that edge of the step, needs to have a slip resistant strip and it has to be demarcated. It has to be of a contrasting color to the step. So as people are going down the stairs, Ralph, they can see where the edge of the step is. See, a lot of people will fall down the stairs and those are oftentimes fatalities. Because the nosing, that edge of the step was not visible. They couldn't see it. Or it was really, really rounded off and slippery. And so keeping stairs and floors safe is not hard. It's actually quite simple. But a lot of the reason why people have stairway falls is because they're living in a building that's very, very old. It hasn't been you know, updated. It hasn't been kept up. People will put carpeting on stairs. And that's a bad idea because carpeting along that nosing, that edge, Becomes very slippery. And most of us know what it's like kind of as a kid running up the stairs in your home with your stockings on. You hit that edge and down you go. But, you know, that's when you're a kid. Imagine you're 75 or 80. You hit that edge, you go down the stairs and you're probably going to die. You're you're right. Hip injuries, 95% according to the CDC, of hip injuries are directly caused by
3: accidental falls. And so, yeah. There's another problem mm -hmm? that everybody experiences. You're walking up six or seven flights of stairs to a home. And there's no banister. Right. There's no railing. And it's pretty steep. So that's the homeowner's responsibility or the apartment mm-hmm. building's responsibility. What do you yes. know about that?
4: Yes, if you are renting the building, meaning it's not your home, it's an apartment or a facility you're renting, the property owner, the landlord has a responsibility to keep it in safe operational condition. There's actually a existing building code that covers existing properties, buildings in this particular area and that yeah you want to make sure that the not only just is there a banister ralph a handrail but it's firmly affixed i've had lawsuits where a person would be in a hospital coming down the stairs grab the handrail and the handrail ralph would pull out of the wall and they would go down the stairs with the handrail in their hand very common problem because they haven't been inspected there may have been damage and it was improperly maintained And so you're grabbing onto the handrail, the guardrail, depending on the condition, thinking it's there to help stabilize you when it actually fails. And there's been quite a few cases. A lot of people, Ralph, a lot of people fall downstairs, especially at home. And most of those people are, sadly, the elderly. And when they go down the stairs, it's usually a serious hip injury, a head injury. If they're living alone, there's no one there to know they fell down the stairs. And sadly, they'll die.
3: We should emphasize that all these situations in the court of law are under tort law, that the Mm -hmm. plaintiff's attorney files these reckless conditions, flooring, stairs, chemical cleaning agents, whatever, these are torts, wrongful injury. That's what the tort museum is all about. And so keep that in mind. It's good to talk about them as torts because people often don't recognize how important tort law is to protect them to help compensate them, to disclose to a larger audience the hazards for their own protection, and to engage in prevention, which Russell Kensier is all about.
0: Thank you, Russ and Ralph. Up next, a Q&A with our virtual audience. But first, let's check in with our corporate crime reporter, Russell Mokyber.
5: From the National Press Building in Washington, D.C., this is your Corporate Crime Reporter Morning Minute for Friday, April 14, 2023. I'm Russell Mokyber. Gretchen Morgenson and Joshua Rosner are out with a new book, These Are the Plunderers, How Private Equity Runs and Wrecks America. The authors investigate some of the biggest names in private equity, exposing how they buy companies, load them with debt, and then bleed them of assets and profits, all while prosecutors and regulators stand idle. And they show how companies absorbed by private equity have worse outcomes for everyone but the financiers. Employees are more likely to lose their jobs or their benefits. Companies are more likely to go bankrupt. Patients are more likely to have higher health care costs. And residents of nursing homes are more likely to die. For the Corporate Crime Reporter, I'm Russell Mulcaver.
0: Thank you, Russell. Welcome back to the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. I'm Steve Scrovan. I'm David Feldman, Hannah Feldman, and Ralph. Let's take some questions. Hannah? Our first question comes to us from Ali Sadat.
1: Thank you, everyone, for this great program. Has there been any effort to encourage TV public service announcements to air commercials on educating the public on the risk for falls, such as using the right carpets or slippery floors? And especially, I see this a lot at like my rehabilitation unit, the side effects of medication.
4: Good question. Sadly, no, not that we haven't tried, but we've all seen the television program, no matter where you live, local television tonight at seven Woman caught on surveillance video, putting water on a grocery store floor, staging a fake slip and fall event. We've all seen that. You've never seen none of you, none of us have ever seen a legitimate story on mainstream media news about the legitimacy of slips and falls. It's always the one side. It's always fraud. And to your question, Public service announcements are hard to find. They're hard to get, number one. There's a lot of competition for them, but there's just been a resistance to even have a dialogue on the subject of fall prevention, in great part because it's seen as liability. Nobody wants to talk about it. And therein lies the problem, Ali. There's the dirty little secret. I was gonna ask Ralph a question, asking any of you, what do you think the most dangerous shoe is in the world? What's the number one most dangerous type of shoe? Ralph was alluding to stiletto heels.
0: It's actually not stilettos. What do you think? I'm going to go the opposite direction. I'm going to say the a, a sneaker.
6: Flip-flop.
0: There Flip-flop. you go. And the most
4: widely worn shoe, right? I mean, It's like the official state shoe of Hawaii and Florida and Texas in the summer. It is the most widely worn shoe and it is the most dangerous. And it contributes to a lot of slips and falls. And again, product labeling will help. Hey, if you want to wear flip-flops, folks, have at it. But understand, they're not safety shoes, okay? Most people don't realize that until it's too late.
7: Our next question comes to us from John Leonard.
8: Hi. My question is, don't frivolous lawsuit procedural requirements intentionally hamper legal representation disproportionately to very old people since the recompensable values of their lives are effectively nil? Isn't this unconstitutional in some way? it's
4: discriminatory for sure. And you brought up an interesting phrase, frivolous lawsuits. I mean, every defense attorney thinks a slip and fall lawsuit is frivolous, right? They don't want to get in front of a jury. In fact, I ran into a uh, safety uh, vice president of a major retail store at a cocktail party and said, hey, you get slips and falls all the time. What are you doing about it? You know what he said? Tort reform. That's their answer. And so put as much pressure on the, the legal system, exploit the legal system, do not accept that this is a preventable injury, that there actually is negligence or failure to provide a reasonably safe surface. And when it's all said and done, blame the victim. It's easy to blame old people, right? I mean, it's easy. Well, you know, older people have a gate restrictions, you know, just make light of it. Yeah, it's, you know, old people fall a lot. How often do you hear that? But yes, it is, I think it's discriminatory. Ralph, I don't know if it's a legal question for you.
3: No, it's the way the tort system law of damages operates because they they have less wage loss. You know, they're retired. They don't have much future projection of wages. However, there is pain and suffering. So that's often what the tort lawyers focus on, as well as medical expenses. Thank you for your question.
7: Our next question comes to us from Monica McGann. My name is Monica McGagan from Eastern Pennsylvania,
6: and is my wonderful landlord, Of 40 years, who prefers to keep the rent low in order for me to fix up things, is he responsible for putting an extra railing on our three floor stairwell? It is on one side and a bit weak on the bottom. And I'm 70 years old, so I am concerned how to share in the responsibility for putting another railing up.
4: To answer your question, Monica, yes, they are responsible, but it begins with you writing a letter specifically requesting that he install a handrail or do an inspection and an installation of a handrail. So it starts with the paper trail. Your rent might be low until you fall down those stairs and all of a sudden the rent's going to go way up because uh your injury is going to cost him a lot of money. So I would say yeah, write him a letter telling him you're concerned about the handrail safety. You would ask that he install another handrail after all it is his property. You can't necessarily just be making alterations without his approval and see where it goes from there. If he if he says no, then To all the attorneys in our audience, I guess that's what's called being on notice. Right, Ralph?
3: That's right. And poor lighting often is a factor. We Mm just didn't get to all these other factors. Poor Mm -hmm. lighting. Thank you very much, ma'am.
7: Our next question comes to us from Phil Allen. Good
3: morning, folks.
7: I'd like to
8: know if the term floor is expanded to outdoor surfaces. And furthermore, I'm very concerned about wet surfaces outdoors when it's raining. Mm -hmm because I've nearly come to grief several times. What is the safest outdoor wet surface? Thank you very much for your uh, answers.
4: No, thank you, Phil. Yes, the standards do apply. In fact, just last week, the NFSI published its long-awaited wet barefoot standard. This is a standard that would apply to swimming pool decks and bathtubs and showers. And this took, I think, 10 years for the NFSI to move this standard along. A lot of opposition. But now there's a wet barefoot standard that protects people both inside as well as outside. As far as uh, the safest product outdoors, believe it or not, it's good old fashioned broom finished concrete. You can run on a city sidewalk in the rain and not slip. But it's not necessarily attractive. It's not easy to clean, but it does offer a very, very high level of slip resistance. If you're going to provide any type of painting or coatings like you see on handicap ramps in a parking lot outdoors, make sure you put the right amount of aggregate or sand. In the paint to enhance its slip resistance because painted surfaces, paint in general, provides a very low level of slip resistance, specifically when it's wet and when it's raining outside. That's when probably Phil, as you mentioned, that's when you're 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 most concerned about uh, slips and falls on wet surfaces outdoors.
3: By the way, Russell, those who don't get a chance to ask the question or those who ask the question but want more response, they can always contact you, right? Sure,
4: sure. Yeah, my email address is uh, Russ k that's r-u-s-s-k the letter k at nfsi.org and feel free to reach out to me by the way the nfsi website has a ton of information most of it is free a lot of recommendations just a lot of stuff for everybody to benefit from it is a 501c3 charitable foundation so we really don't spend a lot of our monies on payrolls in fact i'm a volunteer i don't know if you knew that ralph i'm not only am i the founder but i I'm, i'm not paid I'm a uh, full-time volunteer for the NFSI. So uh, go to the website. A lot of good information.
7: Our next question comes to us from Ahmed Bouzid.
9: So my question is the following. Ralph has shown us that when companies do the right thing, eventually they themselves benefit from doing the right thing. so for specifically those situations where the conversations between you and, say, the employer, why not engage CFOs and show them that, the lost revenue, the lost productivity of an employee who, who falls, especially an, ex, an expensive employee, but all employees, right? If you do the math, it's much better to do the right thing as opposed to pay and, and so forth.
4: Well, doing the right thing, Ahmed, is debatable. They think they're doing the right thing, right? I mean, they, they look at it as why would we spend, you know, for example, a million dollars on improving the slip resistance of our floors when we only have a half a million dollar slip and fall problem. And so it becomes a mathematical debate. Uh, They do think they're doing the right thing. But remember, as long as somebody else is paying the bills, why should they change? As long as they can simply pass the cost along to their customers, what's the motivation for them to change? Litigation is a motivation to change. That gets that CFO's attention. But I would ask you this, Ahmed, just to yourself. It's a rhetorical question. How many corporate CEOs, CFOs, COOs came up from the ranks of safety? And the answer is zero. They're not safety people. They don't think like safety people. They're corporate people. They've been trained in business and they understand that in order to cover losses, usually means cutting payroll, cutting jobs, reducing product size, whatever it might be. It's everything but safety. They just don't think in that context, even though it's very logical. And Ralph, you faced this in your career.
3: Yeah, it's the insurance industry problem too. Once a company is insured, They sort of let their guard down, say, well, if something happens, the insurance company will cover it. That's what I'm paying premiums for. On the other hand, the insurance company should have a goal of loss prevention to keep their claims down. So they should do what the insurance companies did in the mid-19th century when they inspected boilers of the new industries. And they would insure a boiler that didn't meet the insurance company's engineering standards. They would say, unless you meet these standards, we're not insuring you. And so the factory owners said, well, we got to have insurance. Boilers explode quite frequently. Let's raise the standard for our boilers. So the insurance company is a whole part of the story. But-
4: well, let me interject, Ralph. You mentioned a moment ago, a while ago, on one of your previous radio shows, how the insurance industry makes most of its profit from investments, where in the past they made most of their profits from reducing claims. And so the industry's changed where claims become less of an emphasis in terms of revenue, preservation, or profits because they are heavily invested in Wall Street and other enterprises where the bigger monies are coming in.
3: Yeah, That's true. More money comes from their stock and bond and other investments now than from their premiums, and it turns them into financial companies instead of what was the case in the 19th century. They were basically insurance engineering companies. They were interested in loss prevention and the safety conditions of their customers, such as factories.
7: Our next question comes to us from Karen Johns. Hello, thank you. I'm near Boston. There's a preferred site for a new school that's going to be built on a steep
6: ledge and the access will be over 1,100 feet of ramps and stairs to get, yeah. And when when asked about safety, the school building committee says, don't worry. You know, basically don't worry. There's, there's insurance. (laughs) They actually, that has happened. We've witnessed it. And it's a vocational school and they run evening programs for adults. So there's many, many people that use this school. So I have questions. Is there something I can download where I can show different commissions, some facts that might make them pay attention, anything at the tort museum. And also I'm wondering It's a regional school, but it's permitted by the one town that it will be built in. Would that town have greater liability? If that's the thing that makes them pay attention, I'm wondering. I don't know. And I also would like to hear what you have to say about the risk of this. A lot of them will be vocational students. They'll be young, but not all because of the evening programs.
4: Good question. The ADA does govern much of what you're discussing as far as landings and ramps and total distances that can be used on a walkway. Remember, most people that are disabled, specifically those in a wheelchair, they cannot physically, they don't have the strength to roll a wheelchair up 1,100 feet of inclines. Just that simple. So that's a factor. Just go to the ADA.gov and there's a section on ramps, exterior as well as interior ramps. That would be a good starting point. Your local building code has to inspect per the ADA before they get an occupancy permit. I'm a bit surprised, but not that the committee you mentioned always assumes there's insurance and there's nothing to worry about. Well, until it's their kid, right? Until it's their child that falls down those stairs and gets killed, then it's a crisis. But today, who cares? Sad to say, and I'm being honest with you, I doubt anything will change until somebody gets hurt. That tends to be the way government responds. It's crisis management. And right now there's no crisis. It's a design element. Some architect signed off on it. I'm sure it looks really, really great to the committee. But safety always takes a a backseat, doesn't it, Ralph?
3: Yeah, well, I I once was informed by someone who had a similar situation, and what he did was he printed skull and crossbones and stuck them on the premises just to get Mm -hmm. the attention. Anyway, if you have more follow-up questions, I'm sure you do on that, ma'am. Russell will answer it. Just go to that website that he mentioned, and he'll mention it again before Mm -hmm. we conclude.
7: Our next question comes to us from Lynn Harvey.
6: Hi, I recently had a serious fall just walking on the sidewalk that was uneven. How can the problem of dangerous sidewalks best be addressed and hopefully corrected in a timely manner?
4: Well, good luck. It's like a stop sign. Lynn, you know, you you can complain that you need a stop sign at a particular intersection, kids are crossing near a school district. Sadly, it takes a child losing their life before the city puts a stop sign up. That just tends to be the way a lot of people think about safety. It's always a response to. But complain, right? The first thing you want to do is complain in writing. Because a lot of times with business owners, cities will say is, well, we've never received a complaint. So complain. Start with a complaint because that way they can't say we never received one.
3: And send it to the town attorney's office or the mm-hmm. city attorney, which sends another kind of message. With fewer and fewer people using sidewalks, sidewalk maintenance is deteriorated. In the Mm -hmm. 1930s, 1940s, 1950s, towns were much more concerned about level sidewalks and not rutted sidewalks and undulating sidewalks. So if you send to the town attorney, because some towns say, well, it's the homeowner has to maintain, but the ground under it is owned by the town. Anyway, just make it a a legal issue, not just a walker or a pedestrian Mm -hmm. issue. And you might get their attention and send it to the local paper or local radio station. Mm -hmm. It's a problem in town after town after town. I'm glad you raised it because we neglect it to cover sidewalks.
7: Our next question comes to us from Norman Hussar.
1: Hi, thank you so much for your program. A few years ago, I had a slip and fall. I injured my knee. I had to have a knee arthroscopy. My experience with Anthem uh, the day of the surgery, they decided to cancel my surgery was what I was told I told them the previous day I recorded them approving it. I didn't realize that slip and falls were something that I could sue them for. I find it odd that I had to threaten Anthem to get my knee surgery. I never decided to sue anybody, but it begs the question for me at this point, namely, what is the statute of limitations for slip and fall And Do you guys, in your experience, find medical providers withholding diagnosis or treatment for slip and fall injuries? Because obviously if you're related to somebody's geriatric condition, Perhaps there never was an injury.
8: In Texas, the
4: limitation is two years. I don't know what it is in other states. Ralph, you might be able to address
3: that, but it's, it's well, two years. Well, they usually go from two years to three or four years. The corporations go to the state legislatures to shorten the statute of limitation. So you have to be very careful. But most states, it's two years to three to four years. You have to check the state. That's not hard to do. That's mm-hmm. pretty clear on the website of the state government. And what about the rest of his question, Marcel?
4: Yeah, the medical community, uh, I don't have to tell you, we we live in a world where medical costs are very very high. The insurance industry again plays a significant role in, in in each of our healthcare decisions and you may have actually have a case against your insurance provider if you were denied appropriate medical care for a reason that was illegal. But then again, that gets back into the legal realm, so probably good advice would be to contact an attorney run by what you just said to us, and and see what they would have to say.
7: Our next question comes to us from Byron Block.
1: Okay, hi Ralph. Good to hear you with your wonderful advice, and as well as from Russell. It's a terrific show, and I really appreciate it. My question is that many folks will pave their driveway with a smooth asphalt coating, which is often urged by contractors. You know, do the coating every three, four, five years. Your driveway will look gorgeous you know, and you'll avoid problems of the driveway cracking. But those asphalt driveways are much too slippery, especially after any rain. It's like trying to ski down a slope when you want to walk, you know, down your driveway to get the newspaper or talk with some neighbors. So it's safer to use an aggregate mix within the asphalt coating. So you'll get a much more anti-slip surface and, so, my question to Russell is and to Ralph, can there be a regulation to prohibit ultra smooth asphalt coverings on driveways? Because, again, when it rains, and even sometimes oil will leak from your car that's parked on the driveway, and it becomes extremely slippery. And I know this from firsthand experience in my neighborhood when there's a slight rain and you watch people walking down the driveways from their home to the streets. It's as if they need ski poles to help them navigate safely. So what can be done about cool. smooth asphalt driveways?
4: A couple things. One, you describe a common problem. These sealants, as they're known as, uh, are designed to seal the asphalt so water doesn't penetrate into the asphalt surface and in the winter months freeze and break up the asphalt. They're attractive. They're simple to apply. And they're relatively inexpensive. The problem is they're very slippery. Especially if you have a driveway that's on a slope. And I think that's what you were alluding to. So, yes, you want to make sure they use an aggregate. It's not hard to do. Most of these surfaces are either hand rolled, they'll come out with five gallon buckets of the sealant. They can add the aggregate directly into the sealant, mix it up. And when they roll it, you get an abrasive surface. The cheaper ones are the ones that are sprayed on. They'll come out with a spray gun and put a very, very thin film of the asphalt sealant. You can't really add aggregate to it because there's not enough sealant for the aggregate to hold on to your second question yes there are standards the nfsi standards will help protect you because walkways need to be slip resistant that's the building code requirement the ada all the federal rules that use that phrase slip resistant now require that you have those aggregates or some type of attraction enhancing material on exterior walkways that are anticipated to be wet and so the nfsi b101.3 standard would will benefit you because in the unlikely, hopefully unlikely event somebody gets hurt, you've got a case. And the reason I say that is look, I'm not a plaintiff advocate, I'm a safety guy, okay? But sometimes that's your only channel is the legal channel to pursue your claim. And so add the aggregate and 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 that should do the best, you know, you can short of changing out the asphalt on your driveway.
3: Give your website again in case someone missed it.
4: Yeah, it's NF. S-i, that's nancy franksamindigo.org. My email address is russk K. That's R-U-S-S-K at NFSI.org. You can download our petition. There's a lot of great information there. My YouTube channel, if you want to visit that, which covers a lot of this material plus a lot more, is Safety News. And that's news with a Z. And so there's a lot of good information out there. A lot of good information.
3: We've been speaking with Russell Kenzior. Who started and runs the National Floor Safety Institute, a nonprofit institute, who is also an expert witness in trials where liability is an issue for the manufacturer of flooring or any kind of other product we talked about on this program? And he has a petition before the Product Safety Commission to provide more information for you so that you can go to the store if you buy these kinds of projects, footwear or whatnot. There are certain A, B, C, D categories of traction and safety that you can respond to in your purchases. Thank you very much, Russ.
4: No, thank you, Ralph. I appreciate the candid conversation we had today and hope everybody learned a little bit and becomes engaged in really what is such an important problem. For sure.
0: I want to thank our guests again, Russell Kenjior, and a special thanks to Melissa Bird of the American Museum of Tort Law and everyone in our virtual audience. For those of you listening on the radio, that's our show. For you podcast listeners stay tuned for the bonus material, some of the questions that we couldn't include in the short radio segment, that's in the wrap-up. A transcript of this program will appear on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour Substack site soon after the episode is posted. The producers of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour are Jimmy Lee Wirt and Matthew Marin. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our theme music, Stand Up, Rise Up, was written and performed by Kemp Harris. Our proofreader is Elizabeth Solomon. Our associate producer is Hannah Feldman. Our social media manager is Stephen Wendt. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Thank you, Ralph.
3: Thank you. And the Capitol Hill Citizen is out, the latest edition. Many people around the country have bought the earlier editions and been very praiseworthy. It's non official source journalism on your members of Congress, straight out. And you can get it from CapitolHillCitizen.com. Thank you, everybody.
1: Hi, this is Jimmy Leeward, producer of the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, and welcome to the wrap up. And now here's more questions for Russell Kinzior from our live Zoom audience.
7: This question comes to us from Margaret Walsh. When I heard this, I was too old. But I had heard that the only way the bones get
6: strong is during childhood. And once you become an adult, the bones stop growing, building. So is that a motive to encourage adolescents to exercise?
4: I'm not a medical doctor, but, but interestingly to your audience, the chairman of the NFSI B101 committee that authors all these national standards is an orthopedic surgeon. And he would be better placed to answer your question. There is a lot of truth to bone development. Osteoporosis becomes a factor as we age. In fact, the Centers for Disease Control recommends uh, exercise. A regimented exercise program for uh, those over the age of 65, specifically Margaret, for your the reason you raised, and that's to improve bone strength. So, bone density is a factor. Obviously, when you fall and your bones are brittle or weak, it's going to most likely result in a more serious injury. But unfortunately, I'm not a medical doctor, and I can't answer your uh, your question in in the context that I think it deserves to be answered.
3: Well, maybe your orthopedic surgeon can answer Margaret's question. Mm -hmm. So yes,
4: yes. I'll pass it along, Margaret.
7: Our next question comes to us from Matthew Gruskin.
8: Mom 80,
1: how do I shop for the safety shoes?
8: Yeah, well, that's the problem. You can't.
4: There are very, very, very few manufacturers testing and labeling shoes, as I mentioned a moment ago, Matthew, or earlier. You can buy shoes that are labeled as slip resistant. There are some brands that are better than others. Uh, they test better. They perform better. But if you're 80, you probably have other conditions health-wise that some certain shoes may not be comfortable for you. And so you have to kind of balance that out. Hopefully, if our petition is successful, Matthew, you'll be protected because when you go to the market to buy shoes of any type, you'll know exactly how much traction they have under various conditions like water, wet conditions, oily conditions like a restaurant kitchen type of thing. But sadly, today you have very little information available to you, which is the very reason why we're calling for support of our petition to protect you.
3: In the meantime, Matthew, you have to look at the bottom of the shoes that you're thinking of buying. And just from common sense, some of them will come across to you as more traction than others. That's not the the best solution, but there are differences. And you ask the shoe salesperson to help you on that. And, you know, a lot of them will try to find the best in the shoe store that's possible.
7: Our next question comes to us from John Earl.
8: I just simply uh, remember when my mother had a really bad fall because the handle on her GE refrigerator, refrigerator was a nice refrigerator, but the handle was a cheap little plastic device. And I just think that is definitely a a hazard. Uh, Are you doing anything about things like that?
4: The handle broke or came off what was what actually happened
8: it just broke off it mm-hmm. you know when she grabbed it bang it, it came apart yeah we don't really address
4: that but that may be a defect it may be age or wear or there may have been something just inherently dangerous with the handle itself but no we don't we don't really address that type of problem
3: that still can be product liability though against refrigerator company if you're within warranty especially I know this probably happened some years ago, but that would be the first approach. Handles are not supposed to break off refrigerators.
4: Right. By the way, did you notify the manufacturer of the refrigerator about the what happened?
3: Yeah, I, I did get in touch with them.
8: I kind of was kind of irate at the moment and asked why they would put a handle uh, like that. I feel like all refrigerators now ideally would have metal handles, maybe with a plastic grip, but but to have a, to depend on a, a, a plastic handle on a refrigerator to me is a little bit of a, a product defect. And I'm sorry that if, if this was not pertaining to the nature of your presentation. So, but anyway, I, I just wanted to ask that.
4: And don't forget, John, you have social media, take photos, post a short video. You'd be surprised how you might get that manufacturer's
8: attention. Yeah, but that was a while back. Yeah.
7: Our next question comes from Carol Parker. She's asked me to read it. Is the homeowner responsible for a damaged or uneven sidewalk in front of their property
4: well ralph kind of answered that a moment ago depending on where you live uh, certain cities like new york city they deeded over the sidewalk to the property owner like ralph said they own the the soil underneath it but it's your sidewalk in terms of maintenance and they did that because of lawsuits so it depends where you live depending on the municipality go to your local city's website go into the building codes and you'll find Who is the responsible party for sidewalks? For example, inspecting sidewalks, repairing sidewalks. But above all, always, always, always think in terms of notifying the city. Ralph made a good point. Notify the city attorney, the code enforcement officials in writing. Let them know, take photos of the dangerous condition or what you feel needs to be repaired because it always begins with a paper trail. If you don't, they will simply say, we never had anyone complain. This is the first we ever learned about it. Our code enforcement people never saw this, and they just bury it.
3: Most times, a very eager caller to tell you that it's the homeowner's responsibility. <laughs> <So> <laughs> you won't have any trouble getting a direct answer to your question here. <laughs> True.
7: This next question comes to us from Gloria Shen. How much more difficult are slip
6: and fall claims to litigate in contributory negligence states?
4: versus comparative negligence states? Well, again, Gloria, it depends on where you live, what state you're in. Certain states have laws that are different regarding contributory negligence. If you have 1% contributory negligence, that will affect the jury's outcome. Other states, it's 51%. It just varies. But expect that in most jury verdicts, if you get to a jury, that there will be some issue raised about contributory negligence What's really important, and Ralph can speak to this, is the percentage. If you have a very low percentage of contributory negligence where you're only, say, 1% uh, negligent and the property owner's 99%, that will offset the verdict, the amount of jury verdict you're going to receive. But again, every state's a little different.
3: Well, they're getting better, too, over the last few decades, caller. It used to be if you were 1% negligent, it rubs out The 98%, it was a 99%. It was a very draconian and cruel procedural standard for wrongfully injured people claims. Now, because of plaintiff lawyers fighting this, there's a doctrine of comparative negligence, as Russell just alluded to. So let's say the company is deemed by the jury to be 75% to blame and the plaintiff is 25%. They'll take that in account in apportioning the damages. So if they were going to give $100,000 in damage for 100%, they'll take off 25%. It does seem a bit arbitrary and numerical, but that's the best that the jury system and the courts have been able to come up with. It's called the comparative negligence doctrine and every state is different, but most states have moved to a comparative negligence doctrine. Remember, you can always call the Trial Lawyer Association. There's a plaintiff lawyers association in every state. Most of them have newsletters. Most of them answer the phone. And you can ask them the question or go to their website.
7: Ahmed Bouzid had another question that covers something unique, but I believe he's left. But I can ask it. I think it's an interesting question. Is there a website that gathers consumer feedback about products that caused falls? and publishes those findings.
4: Yes, the Consumer Product Safety Commission does have a portal on their website that, at least as it relates to recalls, if there's an unsafe product, uh, in fact, we were notified of a floor mat that the NFSI had uh, certified, it's backing for slip resistance or traction, that the uh, manufacturer voluntarily recalled it because it presented a trip hazard. And so it didn't have anything to do with our testing of the backing, it had to do with the thickness of the map. And so the manufacturer, through CPSC guidance, had a a recall, which the manufacturer voluntarily abided by. But in the case of slips and falls, it's kind of a gray area. A lot of the information that's uh, collected is very ambiguous. For example, when you talk about falls, you know, fall data, how many people went to the emergency room for a fall? Well, what kind of fall? A same level slip and fall? Was it a trip and fall? Was it a stumble? Or was it a fall down the stairs, a fall from elevation? And so the NFSI has really been committed for the last 26 years in keeping this very simple and don't let it get too complex because that benefits people who want it to be great. We want it to be black and white. We want people to be protected. We want people to be safe. And one good way to do that is my mentor, Ralph Nader, taught me is keep it simple, be focused and be passionate.
3: Yeah. What disclosure does when they're ranking A, B, C, D in terms of traction is it stimulates competition. Mm -hmm. So a company says, well, I'm going to get the highest category here and I'm going to advertise it. It's not a substitute for mandatory safety standards by the Consumer Product Safety Commission, but it's a big step forward. And I think Russell would like all of you to consider sending in your comments to their open Public comments by the Consumer Product Safety Commission. So, mm-hmm. give our listeners and viewers, Russell, the website for the U.S. Consumer Product Safety Commission. In yeah, Washington. it's uh,
4: in fact, you can, if you go to the NFSI website, it might be easier because we have a link directly to the Consumer Product Safety Commission this section that deals with our petition. And so, that's going to be most helpful. Unfortunately, it's a government entity and it could be very confusing when you go to their website to uh, find the information you want. So, just Keep coming back to NFSI.org. Any updates will be there. You can download the full petition today. And we hope everyone kind of gets engaged and understands the serious nature of accidental falls and not only the cost, but just the human impact that this takes on our society and individuals'
8: lives.
1: And now it's time for In Case You Haven't Heard
8: with Francesco DeSantis.
9: In a major blow to Governor Greg Abbott, The Texas House of Representatives voted 86 to 52 in favor of an amendment to bar state funds from being used for private school vouchers, according to KXAN. This was achieved through a coalition of Democrats and rural Republicans in the Lone Star State, per NBC. The Washington Post reports that greater numbers of assisted living facilities are rejecting Medicaid and evicting seniors from their homes. One particularly harrowing story involves Shirley Holtz, a 91-year-old with mobility issues and dementia, who was evicted from her hospice care because the facility decided to refuse Medicaid payments. In a statement responding to the ProPublica report on undisclosed gifts received by Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, Senate Judiciary Committee Chair Dick Durbin stressed that, quote, Supreme Court justices must be held to an enforceable code of conduct, just like every other federal judge. The ProPublica reports a call to action and the Senate Judiciary Committee will act. However, the Judiciary Committee has been hamstrung by democratic absences, particularly that of California Senator Dianne Feinstein, who has missed nearly 60 votes since February, according to the San Francisco Chronicle. Barack Ravid reports that the US has blocked the release of a planned United Nations Security Council statement decrying the Israeli police raid at the Al-Aqsa Mosque, one of the holiest sites in Islam, during Ramadan. More Perfect Union has issued a statement saying, quote, months after 440 Planned Parenthood nurses and staff in five Midwestern states voted to unionize, management has fired two members of the union's bargaining team and issued, quote, final written warnings to all 11 other bargaining team members threatening immediate termination. From Truthout, Rep. Pramila Jayapal has filed an official constitutional amendment to overturn Citizens United. A constitutional amendment is currently the only means available for reversing this catastrophic decision. In a video obtained by Gothamist, NYPD officers arresting a man wearing a Black Lives Matter sticker on his bike helmet were recorded bragging about, quote, milking overtime, referred to a female arrestee as a liberal, quote, C-word and joked about committing the arrestee to a mental hospital. This comes as Mayor Eric Adams announced that NYPD officers who work for five years will now make approximately $50,000 more per year than teachers with the same amount of time, an overall increase of $5.5 billion to the most expensive police department in the country, according to CBS. Robert Costa of CBS reports that former rep Dennis Kucinich is advising Robert F. Kennedy Jr. on his presidential run. Costa went on to say that Kucinich could be the campaign manager or a top political advisor and that Kucinich has urged Kennedy to focus more on the environment than his signature anti-vaccine message. Kansas public media KCUR reports that Republicans in that state overrode the Democratic governor's veto and authorized genital inspections on minors in order for children to play sports. Somehow, the party advocating for adults to inspect children's genitals is calling the other party groomers with a straight face. From Deadline, progressive lawmakers are calling on the Department of Justice to investigate the Warner Brothers merger with Discovery. In a letter to Attorney General Merrick Garland, the DOJ antitrust chief Jonathan Cantor, the signatories allege that the merger, quote, appears to have enabled the company to adopt potentially anti-competitive practices that reduce consumer choice and harm workers and affected labor markets. They went on to argue that the merger has led to the, quote, hollowing out of an iconic American studio and cited the cancellation of projects and the removal of content from the HBO Max platform. Dueling court orders have resulted in uncertainty about universal access to the abortion pill mifepristone. Regarding the order to suspend the drug, Senate Finance Committee Chair Ron Wyden issued a statement declaring, quote, I believe the Food and Drug Administration has the authority to ignore this ruling. The Senate Finance Committee oversees the FDA. The Austin American Statesman reports that, less than 24 hours after Daniel Perry was convicted of murdering Garrett Foster, a Black Lives Matter protester in 2020, Governor Greg Abbott announced that he would pardon the convicted killer as soon as the request, quote, hits my desk. While the killer claimed that he was acting in self-defense, he had mused on social media that he might, quote, kill a few people on my way to work. Finally, from Bloomberg Law, the International Brotherhood of Teamsters reported gaining 206,000 members in 2022, an increase of 20% in the previous year. Many credit this growth to the new leadership in the union, which took power in 2022. Teamsters President Sean O'Brien responded to this news by tweeting, just getting started. And that's in case you haven't heard.
1: And that's a wrap. Join us next week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. Until next time stand up, stand up. You've been sitting-